Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That song is true. If you have a Bible opener to James chapter 4, James chapter 4 is where we left off last week as we're journeying through this beautiful, power-packed letter of James. We're going to look specifically at verses 7 through 10 this morning. So it would be wonderful if you had your copy of God's Word open before you. If you don't have a Bible, please use the one, one of the ones you can find in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that as our gift to you. There are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. Let's admit that. In fact, one of the things I'm most encouraged by is that the Bible admits that there are parts of the Bible that they are hard to understand. In fact, one of the Bible writers, one of the men that was closest to Jesus, writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, in his second letter, Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 16 or 17, He's speaking about Paul's letters, and he says, you know, brothers, there are some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. And to that I say, amen, and amen, and amen. Some of the Bible's hard to understand. This is not one of them. This passage that we're going to read today is not hard to understand. In fact, my concern more is that it is so clear and so simple that we're prone to overlook it. So let me read it, and let's ask the Lord to help us work through these three verses. Let's read a little bit before and a little bit after. Let's read verses starting in James chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 12. But we're going to zero in on verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And let's ask the Lord to help us after we read this text, to help us understand and apply and live these verses. This is James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us. We need your help. These words are clear. But our heads are foggy. We are distracted people. Even though many of us have been born again, we we still are fighting with the old man. And this passage is, is, is just a mini manual on the Christian life. This passage is for each of us today. Lord, help us to hear your word and to heed it. Make us more like Jesus. Eternal things are at stake this morning. For my friends that are in this room that don't yet know Christ, make them alive by your sovereign grace. Help me communicate these truths. Help me effectively and faithfully speak your words to this this church that you've given me to serve. We pray all these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, really the whole chapter of James chapter 4, in particular this little section right here, is one of those places in your Bible that, that you just need to be familiar with. I think verses 7 through 10 are a kind of Manual. There are 10 imperatives where James is just rattling off commands that are just clear statements about what the humble life should look like, what, what humility should look like, like. And that's where we ended last week when we looked at verses 1 through 6. The context of what James is writing about in James chapter 4 is dissension and selfish arguments and quarrels that are rising up in the church, and he's writing to Christians, and he's speaking very severely to them, and he's saying that the problem in the church isn't so much out there. The problem is in here. It's in us. It's the passions. It's our old man that still wars within us, and what it means to be a Christian is to not be a friend of the world around us or to coddle our remaining passions that need to be put to death, but to humble ourselves, and God gives grace to those who humble, ourse- who humble themselves. And that's how he ends in verse 6. He says he gives more grace. In fact, God is so concerned about the sanctification and the godliness and the growing in Christ's likeness of his people that verse 5 says something stunning. It says that we looked at last week that God yearns jealously like a husband over his people, jealously over them, 
And because he is the only truly holy righteous being in the universe, God can yearn jealously and do it in a righteous way unlike anybody else in the world. And God is yearning jealously that we would be faithful in our lives, that, that we would not be spiritual adulterers and cheat on God with the world, but that we would love him passionately. That's his desire for every one of us. And in order for that to happen, he must give us grace. And we must respond to this grace, verse 6, by humbling ourselves. Now verses 7 through 10, and we're just going to work through these verses, is James telling us what humility looks like in the life of one of God's people. So let's just work through these verses. I don't have an outline. I have verse set, point number one is verse seven. Point number two is verse eight. Point number three is verse nine. And point number four is verse 10. Point number one, verse seven. Submit yourselves, Therefore, to God. How do you submit yourself to God? Please don't let the simplicity of this verse cause your minds to wander. James is telling us that humility, those that God gives grace to, the humble, they will submit themselves to God. So what does this look like practically in our lives? Don't let the simplicity of this elude you. Submission looks like taking in God's word, being people that thrive, that live on God's word. Springer read for us earlier from Luke chapter 4, this beautiful picture of Jesus resisting temptation. Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh. How did Jesus submit to God? By leaning on, by trusting in, by reciting God's word. But it's not just taking in God's word and knowing God's word. It's fighting to obey God's word. We have to ask ourselves, first, do I know what God's word says about how I should be living in every area of my life? For, ask yourself that question. Is there some area of your life where, where you are uninformed about God's word? The question right now is just simply, friends, there's, there's difficult things in the Bible to understand, but this is not difficult. Will you, will we, will I be a person that submits, that listens to, that takes in God's word? And when we take it in, then we have to ask ourselves another question. Will I fight? Will I strive to obey it? And yes, it is a striving, it's a fighting, but are we even fighting? If we're not fighting, the, the problem may not be spiritual weakness, it, it may just be stubbornness and pride. The opposite of humility is pride and stubbornness, and I think that's what's in view here. So submission to God looks like taking in God's word and fighting to obey God's word. Our are we doing that is the question that is before us simply. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will root out parts of my life and parts of your life that are not in submission to God, areas of our lives that are not being informed by the authority of God's word. What does that look like in your life? Submission to God 
is to take in God's word and what he has said and then to fight, to wrestle, to obey God's word. Submission to God also looks like obligating yourself to Christ and to obligate yourself to Christ and his lordship is to obligate yourself to Christ's body. Jesus, I read this earlier this week, Jesus does not have any out-of-body experiences. Think about that for a moment. Jesus does not have any out-of-body experiences. Jesus is the head, and what is the body of Christ? It's us, the church. So to obligate yourself to Christ, to God, to his word, is secondarily also necessarily to obligate yourself to other believers, to the church, to God's people, to people that are hard to submit yourself to. What does submission to God look like? Not only submission to his word individually, but submission to one another. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the, use of the time, because the days are evil. That's true. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the Christian life, he's saying here, look carefully how you walk, look carefully how you submit to God, look carefully how you live in these evil days, and the context, the way that you do that, Paul then explains later on in that context of that verse, is to live in an obligated way towards other Christians. And he concludes with verse 21 saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think this clearly implies that every Christian should have a kind of formal obligation to other Christians. And I think the context for this clearly biblically is a committed life to a local church, whether it's this one or another one. Do not hear me say that this is the only local church where this can be done. There are many faithful local churches, but I'm the pastor of this church and you're here now. So I think the application is that we, we need to commit ourselves. Our, is that true of your life? Is that true? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 25. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I think clearly the context isn't just all Christians everywhere, although on some level that's true, but to this group of people that you are in a way formally committed to, that you are to think about it, consider how you can do good to them spiritually. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, a Christian that is living a submitted life to God is living a submitted, obligated life to other believers in the context of a local church. Is that true of your life? If it's not, you are not living a life that is submitted to God. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13. He presses in 
He says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Can that verse be true of your life? Do you have a group of leaders? I think the context is a group of elders that God sets over his church, a group of people that are committing to live their lives together in a way that they are obligated to one another and they're committed to one another's fellowship and growing in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying here to every Christian that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them. And that there's a group of people for every Christian biblically, that is tasked with keeping watch over your soul. I think implicit in this is this idea of a formal commitment to a church. Again, don't hear me say that we're trying to grow the membership roles of Crosspoint. That is absolutely not the case. I'm just trying to obey the scriptures. And if I'm being a faithful pastor and I am reading this text from James where it says, submit your life to God, this is a clear implication biblically as we look at what the submitted life looks like. This is what it means to be submitted to God. Amen. To be in a local church where you are obligating yourself to people who are imperfect and who have a spiritual biblical responsibility to keep watch over your soul. Amen. Is that true of your life? If it's not... If it's not, do this. Fill out that little connection card and say, help me understand more. Somebody contact me and help me understand more what it means to be a member of this church. And if this church isn't the right place for you, we will recommend other good Bible-preaching churches in our area. But let me just say unequivocally and unashamedly with pure biblical motives that I think every healthy Christian must and should be a member of a local church. There's no verse in the Bible that says that you must be a member, but much of the New Testament doesn't really make sense without this idea of membership, this committed connection that each of us as believers in Jesus should have to one another to be submitted to one another. In fact, Jesus says, and we'll, we'll get to this, I think, when we hit the last two verses of James in James chapter 5. We'll get to it eventually. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 that we are to be so radically committed to one another's preservation in the faith, that we are to be so radically committed to one another's discipleship, that if one of us is egregiously disobeying God and not repenting of our sin, that the rest of the Christians around that person in fellowship, the context, he calls it the local church, that a local church is supposed to say to a Christian who is considering themselves part of that local church and is in unrepentant sin, they are to say to that person, if you don't turn from your sin, we are going to put you out of this local church. That's what Jesus says in Matthew, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And so if there is something to be put out of, there's something to be put into. And there's a group of people that are hard to live with, that are hard to submit to, that aren't perfect, and who got their own junk, that you are called to biblically to submit to, that I'm called to submit to. I am called, if you're a member of Crosspoint, you are part of my communal authority, and my life is bound to you, and your life is bound to me. 
And we, as members of the church, are bound to one another. That's what the submitted, that's what, that's what verse 7 says. Don't let the simplicity of this put you off. What does submission to God look like? It looks like taking in God's word. It looks like fighting to obey it. It looks like living in committed fellowship with other believers in a local church. It looks like bearing with one another. It looks like not running off to another church the first time you get offended. It looks like sticking it out. It looks like obligating yourself to God's people. It looks like enduring in a less than optimal situation because this world until heaven is a less than optimal situation. Submit yourselves to God, James says. Then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does resisting the devil look like? Well, I want to say this. I am not saying that there is not an acute and supernatural aspect of the demonic. I have, in fact, I have a very healthy respect for the supernatural aspect of satanic activity and the demonic. I was very aware of that as a, a child for some reason. There were two things that I was very afraid of when I was a kid growing up uh, in the early 70s, late 70s. It was Russia and the devil. Uh, as a kid growing up in the Cold War era, uh, I watched Red Dawn and Patrick Swayze saving us from the commies parachuting into the schoolyard that traumatized me. I was also very scared of sharks because my dad took me to see Jaws when I was a young child, which was a horrible parenting. <coughs> Honestly, to this day, I haven't gotten into the ocean beyond waist deep, and I don't understand those of you that go way out there. There are so many sharks just beyond where you're swimming. I don't know if you know that, if you've seen Shark Week, you, the helicopter flyovers. I don't get you people that get out in the air. So there's three things. I'm scared of Soviet Russia, I'm scared of sharks, and I was scared of the devil. I was very scared of the devil. Uh, my dad, my parents, best friends, to this day, they're best friends. The name of this man who was my dad's best friend, is still my dad's best friend, was a very, very common Hispanic name where I grew up, and that man happened to share the name of a man who was a satanic serial killer in the early 80s in Southern California, the Night Stalker. And it just wigged me out as a kid because my kind of this man that was an uncle in my life just happened to have the same name of this satanic serial killer, and it kept me up at night. Even before I was a Christian, I used to sleep with a Bible underneath my pillow, thinking that somehow that would ward off evil spirits. So I have a healthy respect for satanic paranormal activity. I, I mean, I, I would not play Hotel California backwards to this day. I would not <laughs> do it. I, I have a healthy respect for those things. But I don't think that's the point that James is making right here. Let's develop an understanding of the satanic and the demonic just from James's letter here, just from within James. 
Let's look at how James presents demonic activity and the satanic just within his letter. James chapter 2, verse 19. This is what James says about the demonic. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James's theology of Satan and theology of paranormal activity, theology of demonology here, is somebody who believes in God but doesn't obey him. According to James, that is demonic faith. James chapter 3, verses 13, James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, listen to what James says about demonic activity. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So James is saying, this is what James is saying is demonic. Not Ouija boards, not Ozzy Osbourne, not ACDC, or some song played backwards, but according to James chapter 2, faith that isn't followed by works and bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's demonic. And so when James says, resist the devil, he's not saying, don't go to the scary movie, although I don't think you should. He's not saying, don't play Hotel California backwards, although I don't think you should. When James is saying, resist the devil, he is saying, listen to this, this is profound, he's saying, obey God and say no to yourself. That's what it means in James chapter 4 to resist the devil. Obey God and say no to yourself like we heard read to us this morning from Luke chapter 4, like Jesus did. This is ground zero of our sanctification. Resisting the devil means saying no to our selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and our inclination to say we believe something and not actually do it. And when we live, when we fight, when we struggle to live that way, James says that the devil will flee. But we know, as we read in verse 13 of Luke chapter 4, Springer read to us this morning, we know that we'll have to do it again and again and again. Because remember what it said about Jesus' temptation that the devil left him only to come back at an opportune time. This is the Christian life. It's fighting many, many campaigns of the same war. Point number two, verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What does it look like to <coughs> draw near to God? Well, a few things we need to make sure we understand about this, about this verse and make sure we understand it biblically. Primarily, James is clearly in context talking to believers. He's talking to people who are already trusting in Christ. Go back to James chapter 1 and verse 18. He speaks of these people. He says about us, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his own creatures. So James is speaking to Christians and he's telling Christians how they became Christians. They didn't, don't mistake him here, they didn't become Christians because they first draw near to God on their own. He's saying, no, God made you alive. You, out of his own will, he brought you forth. So he's not saying in verse 8 that we make the initial or decisive step in salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you will muster enough strength in and of yourself to draw near to God that he will meet you halfway on that road of salvation and he will draw near to you. No, that's not it. That disagrees with the rest of the New Testament. It disagrees with what James has even said himself in chapter 1, verse 18, about how God's the one that brings us forth. No, he's speaking to Christians, and he's speaking to us about sanctification. He's speaking to us about what we now must do now that we have been brought near. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We just sang about it. Nothing but the blood can cleanse us. So it is only Christ and his blood and his work on the cross, only Jesus' death and God's wrath being poured out on Jesus can make us new. Nothing else. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our drawing. We're saved by Christ's obedience, not ours. But, don't miss this. Those of us that love to exalt and rest in and revel in the, the grace of the gospel and the finished work of Christ, now that we have been made alive, now that we have been drawn near by God, we, in verse 8, now are commanded to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. So what's this verse saying? Is it a contradiction? No. It's saying that positionally, if you're a believer, you have been brought near to Jesus. You, you can be no closer to God than he has already made you in Christ. The Bible says amazing things about what he has done with you if you're in Christ. He has united you to Christ by faith, you are one with him. You're united to Jesus. He's in you and you are in him. You can be no closer to Christ after your justification and adoption and regeneration. You will never be closer to him than you are right now positionally. You are, according to Ephesians 2, seated, Ephesians 1, seated with Christ in heavenly places, even now positionally in Christ. But experientially, we are not always so near. Amen? And what James is saying is, even though we have been brought near in salvation, we must draw near in sanctification. And how do we do that? By and through Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So do you see the, the at least from our perspective, the seeming paradox of this truth, you've been brought near, you've been washed, you've been cleaned, and as a result of that, that is true in the heavens, that's true in eternity. Now, because that is true, draw near to God. Experience this. Know it to be true in your life. Feel it. Fight to submit to God and resist the devil and draw near to him. And what will happen the experience of his nearness, of his presence, will be near to you. What can, what can be better than to feel the nearness of God in your life? Nothing is better than that. And what does nearness to God lead to? It leads to, in fact, it must lead to, in some measure, holiness and deed and purity of heart on our part. When we come to God, even though we've already been cleansed, we cleanse, we cleanse our hands, we fight for our sanctification, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, that's what Paul says. Listen to Hebrews, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, how do you work out what is already yours? It's the becoming of who you already are. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so even though God has done all these things in your life, the working out of them is your sanctification. And God is glorified in the fighting for, in the Christian life, what we already have. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We must put to death. We must cleanse our hands. We must purify our hearts. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, verses 3 through 5. Follow the logic, which on the surface may sound like a contradiction, unless this passage has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, which it has been. Listen to Colossians 3, verses 3 through 5. For you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You can't get any nearer to God than to be hidden with Christ in God. It's, it's happened, past tense, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And now look at Paul's logic in verse 5. All this is true. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So follow his logic. Put to death those remaining things in you that are earthly, even though you have already died. In fact, because you've already died, do that. That's what's going on here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Here's a question for each of us. Friends, don't let the simplicity of this escape us. I'm talking to Christians now. 
What needs to die in your life? What do you need to mortify? What do I need to mortify? What needs to be washed? What needs to be cleansed? What, what corner of your life are you holding on to? James chapter 4, verse 8 is one of the most important verses for the Christian life. Cleanse your hands, and you can do that. Christ is in you. Christ is for you. Christ has united himself to you. Therefore, draw near to God. What needs to die in your life? What thing are you coddling? What thing are you hiding? What is it? What needs to die? That's a question for each of us this morning. And before we move on to verse 9, just one final word on this verse to unbelievers. I think the context of verse 8 is that James is speaking to believers. He's speaking about this seeming paradox of the Christian life. That even though we've been brought near by God's action, by God's work, by God's regenerating power and salvation, we now, because we've been made alive, are to draw near in sanctification to God. So you can't save yourself. But to the unbeliever that may be here this morning, to somebody that may know themselves not to be a Christian, you may be, you may be wondering, well, how, how do I come to God? In fact, you may be even feeling a sense in your life that you need to draw near to God. And what I would say to that is, yes, let this verse command you to do the thing that you need to do. How does God draw people to himself? By awakening their heart and putting in them this sense that they need to draw near to God. And experientially, it will feel like you are moving towards God when in reality what's happening is underneath it all, God is waking you up, giving you the ability, and he is drawing you even as you feel like you are moving towards him. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. You may think that you're doing it, but it is the invisible hand of the Lord, Lord wooing you to himself. And so what I say to you, just counsel from, from a, a bystander, just go with it. Go to God. Draw near to God. But no. In fact, I would just say to you, I think the hound of heaven is chasing you down. And he's dragging you by the scruff of your neck. You may feel like you're walking to God, but the hound of heaven has you. And so go to God now. Verse 9. Point number 3. Verse 9. Now this is one of the most countercultural verses in the whole Bible, maybe in all of James. Verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, we're sort of preconditioned to think, wait a minute, is this, is, does my Bible have a misprint on it? Is this what, what happened here? It seems like we're sort of programmed in this all-grace culture that we live in to instinctively go the other direction. We, we might expect verse 9 to say, be happy and dance and exalt. Let your mourning be turned to laughter and let your gloom be turned to joy. 
because of all these things have happened in you, right? But James goes the other way. He says, <coughs> be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, friends, we need to be careful here. I don't want us to misunderstand this verse. Yes, yes, there is grace in the Lord. But what I think that what James is saying here is that there is a way, in fact, I think there is a propensity in our culture, in our culture that is addicted to self-esteem to too quickly move past the sorrow that sin should produce in us and just want all the good stuff that God has for us in our fields. And what James is saying here is, yes, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Yes, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Yes, there is nothing that a truly born-again child of God can do that would make the Father forsake him. Yes, all of that is true. But what James is saying here is that those who are truly repentant, who have truly drawn near to God and see the light of his glory and grace and all of his goodness and the measure that he has gone to forgive us of our sins in light of our friendship with the world, in light of our spiritual adultery, James is saying that part of the proper response of a true Christian, and remember that's what he's concerned about in this letter, is what does the true Christian life look like? In light of that, what James is saying is that there should be this aspect where we should be ashamed of ourselves. Where's our mourning? Where's the sorrow for the ways that we've offended God? Friends, James, the Holy Spirit, better said, is not intending to rub our noses in our mess as if he's training a dumb dog. He's just wanting to produce in us a right sense of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But let's admit, let's admit, come on, come on, let's admit that we are addicted to self-esteem in our culture, even in our Christian church. I can remember one time several years ago there was somebody in the church that had made a mess of their lives, and I was meeting with them to counsel them, and I was rebuked by this brother. And I just went so quickly to encouragement. It's like, oh, come on, it's okay, it's okay, it's, it's past you, it's no, it's no big deal. And I was trying to encourage this brother, and he was sitting in my office just weeping over his sin. And he, he, he stopped me and he said, Brad, st stop it. I, I need to feel this. I need to feel this. Just let me sit in this for a moment and don't try and be like a spiritual cheerleader to me right now. I need to feel this. And whether that brother had this verse in mind, I don't know. But I was rebuked by his sense and self-awareness of what God was working in his life. It was a, a true repentance, a repentance that had angst to it. It was a holy repentance. 
Listen to how David explains and writes a song about this type of posture before God in Psalm 51. King David, after he sinned grievously before the Lord, took another man's wife and then killed that man to cover up for his sin. So he exacerbates adultery with murder. And the prophet Nathan has come to him and called him out. And this is what David says in Psalm 51. And contrast this with, uh, oh, it's going to be okay. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Move on. Grace, grace, grace. Listen to how David, listen to what's on his heart. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Think about that sentence, friends. Bones that are broken, that need to be set again and put back into place, take a while to heal. And implicit in verse 8 is David's understanding that repentance takes a while. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, would not be, you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Verse 17. We need this. I need this. Our grace misunderstanding culture needs this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good design on your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, what is James saying? He's not saying that you need to do penance. He, he's not misunderstanding the gospel. James is, is not in the medieval Catholic church here saying that you need to, you need to pray a bunch of prayers you need to walk around in sackcloth in mourning. You need to prove outwardly that you're really, really sorry for what you've done, you bad little boy Johnny or you bad little girl Susie. No, he's saying that true repentance is going is to produce in us a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, let that be true of us. In verse 10, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What a sentence. Live this type of humble life, and he will exalt you. What will the outcome be? He will exalt you, contrite one. Right on the edge of verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. What will the end of that be? God will exalt you. What does that mean? Does that mean that each of us gets a a ticker tape parade by God so that he can tell everyone how great we are? No. It means that To be humble before the Lord, to be joined to Christ, is to be united with Christ and to be in Him. And if we are in Christ, when Christ is raised, where Christ is, there we are too, and we are with Him, and we are with Him in His exaltation. That's the end of the Christian life. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4, and I end on this. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I think verse 4 is explaining what the end of verse 10 in James chapter 4 means. That's what it means to be exalted, to at the end of our days, when we're done fighting sin, when we're done, when we're done mourning over our sin, when we are done resisting the devil, when we have submitted to God and we fought for that, when we have drawn near to God, when we've submitted to one another, when we have endured less than optimal churches and less than optimal leadership, and when we have endured life together, when we have fought that good fight of the faith, when we've lived that humble life, at the end of that, what's at the end of that? We are folded in with Christ. He comes again, and we will appear with him in glory. And friends, it'll all, it'll all be worth it. That's all I have. Let's pray. Lord, help me submit to you more. I need to submit to you more. Help me resist the devil. Help me draw near to God. Cleanse, help me cleanse my hands. Help me purify my heart. Help me mourn over my sin. I'm a proud man. I'm a proud, arrogant man. Lord, humble me. Humble me. And I think this is true for a lot of my brothers and sisters here. So Lord, do it to them.